There are some things in life that we struggle to understand how they go together, like pineapple and pizza. I can't understand how they go together. Lots of people like pineapple and pizza. Uh, Or socks and sandals. Now, to me, they don't go together. Some people think they do. I don't quite get that. Uh, Then there are all sorts of theological truths we struggle to put together, like how God is one, but also three. Or how Jesus is fully God and fully man. Or how God chooses us and we choose God. Both of these things are true, but it's hard for us to work out how they fit together. Or here's one that gets a little more personal. On the one hand, God says he loves us and promises to be with us and protect us. And yet we often find ourselves in situations where God seems to have disappeared. We suffer pain or sickness or persecution or abandonment. We pray and it seems like God's not listening. How do the two go together? On the one hand, there are God's promises, but on the other, there's our experience of life. That's the problem David's got here in Psalm 22. We don't know exactly what was happening for him, uh, whether it was early in his life and he was being chased around by King Saul who wanted to kill him, or later on describing one of his battles, or perhaps describing what happened after his adultery with Bathsheba when his baby son died. Whatever it is, something terrible has happened and David wants deliverance. He wants God to change the situation. But God's not answering. And David can't understand it. Verse 1, why are you so far away? I cry out, but you don't answer. Why aren't you answering? Where are you? And the reason for the, for the question, the, the why, is because of what comes in verse 3. There's a, there's a change in tone. And it's marked with a yet, a but, even though, despite. Even though present circumstances look bad, it hasn't always been like this. Verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. On the one hand, it feels like you've abandoned me, but on the other, you're the king. And down through history, you've been with our ancestors and you've rescued them. I I can't put these two things together. It's like he knows who God is with his head, He, he knows the theology, but the practice is a different thing. Well, in verse 6, he, he flips again and he returns to his situation. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Everything else every, uh, is so overpowering and out of control. Circumstances sweep him up and throw him along. Everyone else sets the agenda. They have the answers, hurl the insults, and David seems so small. 
powerless. He's a worm. Have you ever felt like that? Everyone else has it better than you. No one has it as tough as your life. And you lose perspective and you feel like the victim. And often that's when God seems most distant. God has abandoned him as well as how he feels. But then David remembers, verse 9, it's another yet. Yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. He, he can't put the two things together. He feels like a worm. He feels powerless and abandoned. But at the same time, he remembers how God has been a constant presence in his whole life. Once again, he's looking back. He's turning the clock back, not all the way to his ancestors, but to how God has acted for him. At least his memories now are personal ones. They've moved from the historic to the practical. In other words, he's saying, it hasn't always been like this. God has been working in my life. That is a powerful argument when things are going bad. I've been a Christian for about 40 years now. I grew up knowing nothing else. There was never a time I didn't know the truth that God was there. But when I was growing up, whenever I heard someone else, a a really powerful, radical testimony, someone who came to Jesus later in life, I wished I had a story like that, of dramatic change, of how I was orphaned and on the streets and I was stealing and doing drugs until God found me and he radically turned my life around. I wished I had a story like that. It seemed more powerful. But I've changed my mind. I realise what a wonderful privilege it is to be able to look back over my life and see God's faithfulness, God's guidance and protection at various steps along the way. That's much better. It's a much better story. It's much more beneficial for me when I struggle, when God seems distant today. It means I'm more able to trust God when it's tough because I've experienced his faithfulness before. It may not seem at the moment as if God's faithful, but I know it's real because he's acted faithfully before. And it's the same with King David. God brought him from the womb. He trusted God even at his mother's breast. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Maybe it's just poetic. And so he has a confidence to make this plea in verse 11. Because he's always known God, verse 11, he says, Do not be far from me. Trouble is near and there is no one to help. Isn't that a heartbreaking verse? Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. He feels completely alone. It's only trouble that's close. It's heartbreaking. But how much worse would this be for a person who doesn't know God? 
who really is all alone. Imagine that person in a situation like David's. What does he do? At least David has the confidence to bring his feelings to God, the the one who's always been faithful to him, who hears him. Whether David feels that or not, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Well, the thoughts of enemies resurface and how hopeless his situation is. And so David turns once again to the thoughts of his enemies, to the problem. David feels like a worm. Then his his enemies are from the other end of the animal kingdom, the most powerful and dangerous animals. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Or verse 16, dogs attack him and they they pierce his hands and feet, probably with their teeth. And then all the way down to verse 18, we, we see the effect the situation has on David bones out of joint, dislocated shoulders and hips, heart melted in fear like wax, dehydrated, weakness, hands and feet pierced. His enemies are gloating, they're surrounding him, they're ganging up on him. He's so worthless, his clothes are more valuable. That's how little they care for David. They're all things another king from David's line experienced. Great King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. He too had enemies gloating and mocking, surrounding him. And when it came to writing about Jesus' death, the Gospel writers recognised the connections between David and Jesus, between this psalm and what Jesus suffered. The physical pain, the dehydration, the mocking, the insults, gambling for his clothing, abandoned by his friends. And so I think the Gospel writers made sure to mention those details as they write their biographies. Well, like I said earlier, we don't really know David's situation. Maybe battle wounds are the closest we can imagine in terms of his physical suffering, but but maybe it's all just poetic, like the worm and the bulls and the lions and the dogs. It's just a a metaphor. For many of us, there have probably been times when we felt like this. Perhaps we feel like this today. Times when we felt powerless, like a worm, And your enemies are the lions and the dogs and the bulls. And you felt all alone with no one to help. But whether David's wounds are real or poetic, God is nowhere to be found. Until verse 19, there's another contrast. It's another but. It's another plea. You seem far away, but but don't be far away. But... Verse 19, you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Uh, 
Rescue Me from the Mouth of the Lions. A plea that comes from a confidence that God is good. Confidence in the power of God as well, that he can change the situation. And here's the crucial turning point in the psalm. Uh, if you're reading along from your Bible, there's actually a, a translation, in uh, another translation in the, the footnote down in verse 21. I think that's actually the best translation other than what we've got. Uh, other translations than the NIV pick it up, but for some reason the NIV chooses to translate this differently. But let me read verse 20 and 21 pretty literally from what it says in the Hebrew. Deliver from the sword my soul and from the power of the dogs my precious life. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. The NIV says, answer me. But it's not a request, it's actually a description. You have answered me. I think that's what he's saying. God is actually God answers his prayer at this point. After all David's pleading, after all the uncertainty, God answers. And there's relief, there's rescue. We don't know exactly how he answers. It might have seemed slow for David and, and puzzling, like God had turned his phone off and gone on holidays. But God answers. And from God's point of view, it's the perfect timing, it's the perfect solution, the moment and the method God had chosen all along. God's answers to our prayers are always perfect in timing and outcome. That is a great comfort to us, isn't it? when we struggle and we ask why, especially when we've been praying for something for years, perhaps you're still praying. Well, with David, the good news arrives, God answers his prayer and David's questions become praise and he can't wait to share his good news. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation, I will praise you. A joy shared is a joy doubled. When you see a wonderful sunset or find a great bargain at the shops or enjoy a delicious meal, you want to share it. You look around and say, who can I show this to? You Instagram it. Because it increases the pleasure that you feel when you can share it with someone you know. But how much better to share things with the brothers and sisters of our church family? Things that are far more important than a meal or a new dress. What answered prayer can you be sharing? How have you seen God working in your life recently? Tell us about it. Share it so we can be encouraged and we can praise God with you. One of the things we're hoping to do is to set up regular times in our church services that we can share. And uh, Catherine Adams from our second service uh, will be helping to organise that. So if you've got a good story to share about how God's been at work, we'd love to hear it. You can come up here and tell us and we can give thanks to God. Or maybe if you hear someone else who's got a good story, tell me and we can get them to share it too. But back to David. 
He doesn't just promise to declare it, he does declare it. In verse 23, he's now talking to his congregation. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And then verse 24, the reason why. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The psalm opened with the question, why have you forsaken me? But that's only how David felt. The reality was God hadn't left him. He hadn't despised David's suffering. He'd heard him. And in his perfect timing, he answered and delivered. He hasn't despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one, says David. And from verse 26, David's thoughts move forward. He, he moves into the, he, he thinks of the future uh, and mentions a, a community feast in verse 26. The poor, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. He's thinking of a feast where God's goodness is celebrated, a fellowship meal, a little bit like the Lord's Supper perhaps, where God's people can celebrate his goodness together. And just like the Lord's Supper, this community feast for David and his people looks forward to a much greater feast, a feast that will fill the earth when God's salvation will be seen not just by one person or by one family or one congregation or one nation, but by the whole world. When God winds this world up and brings in new heavens and new earth, this feast will be a time of feasting and relationships and work and worship. That's perfect. When no one will need to ask why, where are you, God? Because there'll be no more pain or suffering or tears. Look at how he describes it in verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. There's a hint here of life beyond death, I think. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. And what is it that gives David the confidence to long for this day into the future? Well, look at how he finishes in verse 31. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Or maybe it can be translated, for it is done. That's his experience of God in the present. God's faithfulness today gives him confidence to trust his promises for the future. And it's this long-term perspective that we need to keep when we're in the middle of struggles, in the face of our questions, why have you forsaken me, where are you? In the middle of our struggles... God may answer us like he did for David in this psalm. He, he might bring relief or he may answer us in a different way. He may have a greater purpose in the suffering uh, that you're going through than 
to deliver you. And that's how it was with Jesus, wasn't it? He prayed this psalm. God used his pain, his abandonment, his ridicule that he endured on the cross for greater purposes. He didn't rescue Jesus from the cross. He used them to bring forgiveness and life for us through Jesus' punishment and death. And when that had been achieved, then the Father answered the Son, just like David in this psalm, and raised Jesus from death in recognition of the success of his death. Sin had been paid for, death had been defeated. And so David's hope of eternity celebrating God was actually achieved in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that question was answered. Both Matthew and Mark's gospel record Jesus saying verse 1 of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people see that sentence, that question, as evidence that Jesus lost faith at that point. But I don't think that's it at all. I don't think God abandoned Jesus completely at the cross. Jesus quotes this psalm because it's describing his situation so accurately. It's prophecy that pointed towards him. And it helps us to know that that prophecy points towards him. But I think he's also quoting that psalm for himself. I think it's pretty likely that as he hangs on the cross, as he's surrounded by the ridicule of soldiers and religious leaders and the crowd, as he's suffering a slow and excruciating death, Jesus prays this psalm. He prays all of it. Not just verse 1, he prays the whole thing. It's a psalm that comforts and strengthens him but because it reminds him to look forward to the end, to the answer, to the victory. He prays it because it reminds him that his father hasn't completely abandoned him. No matter how he feels. Verse 24, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And God didn't abandon Jesus. And so we can join with Jesus in celebrating, rejoicing in that. And we can be encouraged in our difficult times because we can see God's hand in Jesus' situation. And so we can trust him in our situation too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us, uh, as David did, as Jesus did, to keep our eyes fixed on you, to trust you, even when it seems like you're not there and you're not answering. Uh, We thank you that in the midst of difficult trials and suffering, you are at work bringing about your good purposes. Help us to trust you in the middle of that. And we pray that you will bring us to the rejoicing, the celebration of answered prayer and feasting with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.